BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Let's be real. America's childcare system is broken, especially here in the Bay Area. It's expensive for families, and yet care workers can barely afford to live. While other countries offer a public option for child care, the same has not been true in the U.S. During the pandemic, when the child care functions of school disappeared overnight, it became clear that the new burdens were forcing women out of the workforce, contributing to a serious labor shortage. As historian Eileen Boris puts it, care is not only work, but the work that makes other work possible. And California has now resolved to make an unprecedented investment in preschool. We talk child care and mothers in the workforce with an expert panel and you. That's all next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. California has almost 3 million children five years old and under, including one of mine. And as so many parents of young children could tell you, finding affordable, high-quality child care is brutally hard, especially in areas like this with high cost of living. While the state subsidizes child care for lower-income people, hundreds of thousands of families who qualify for the program can't access it because there simply are not enough slots. The pandemic, which led to the closure of 8,500 care facilities, only worsened the bottleneck. And of course, lack of child care means that in many households, at least one parent, usually the mother, according to labor statistics, isn't able to work. So women have not returned to the workforce in the numbers that men have. In this hour, we break down the access and affordability problems that have long plagued child care, and we'll discuss what the Biden administration in California are trying to do about it, including phasing in universal transitional kindergarten. We're joined first by Leah Austin. She's the executive director of the Center for the Study of Child Care Employment at UC Berkeley. Welcome to the show, Leah. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So set us up here. I mean, what ugly truths did the pandemic reveal about America's child care system? Well, it really revealed just how fragile and broken our childcare system is. You know, we had a system coming into the pandemic where we didn't have enough childcare available for families. It's incredibly expensive for families from a family perspective, but that still doesn't actually cover the full cost of what it takes to provide early care and education services. We're relying on a market and a market doesn't work. Um, And so what that means is the system gets subsidized on the backs of the people doing the work with incredibly low wages. Yeah. So your center has done some research into sort of the 
true cost of, of child care um, for, for very young children. Could you walk us through what those estimates showed? Sure. I mean, if we were covering the full cost of early care and education in California, on the low end, you know, that's, a, that's about $30 billion uh, a year for, for child care um, and, and early learning. Um, and that means that that's a system that is accessible for families, that is universal and open for families to participate in, and a system that is paying the, the people, mostly women, um, and in California, mostly women of color, um, living wages and good wages, making these good jobs. Right now, those um, child care uh, teachers are paid about thirteen forty three an hour. Um, so we just don't have the resources in the system to be paying uh, livable wages. We don't have the resources in the system to pay uh, basic benefits and make sure that um, early educators themselves had good have good working conditions. That's really, you know, they're the linchpin of our child care system. And we just have a situation now where, you know, they're they're leaving to go work other places. You know, I took my kids to McDonald's, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the sign in the window said $15 an hour in benefits. That's way more than a teacher, even one with a bachelor's degree working with young children. Yeah. And yet at the same time, for families looking for childcare, it seems like an extremely expensive proposition. Like how much does, uh, you know, a, a normal Bay Area family pay for, for child care? Well, the cost um, for child care depends on the ages, uh, age of the child. It's most expensive for infant and toddler care, but you can easily be paying, you know, $15,000, $16,000 a year um, in the Bay Area, um, if not more, um, for, for child care. And that is just simply out of reach and unsustainable for families. Yeah. Why is this market so broken? I mean, it just seems like, you know, there's there's just not, you know, it's expensive and also people aren't making enough money. Like what what's going on here? Well, the the primary reason for this is that again, it's it's a system that's relying on a market. It's saying parents come and see what you can afford and try and get access to that. Um, so really at the heart of this is a lack of a robust public, publicly funded system. Um if we think about, you know, as a comparison, the way that our public schools are funded, which, you know, rampant, we can have a whole conversation about uh, improvements needed in our public school funding. But if we said to families, you're only going to access, you know, second grade or third grade, whatever grade your child's in, um, if you can pay for it, or the teachers in that classroom are only going to earn what families can show up with um, in terms of dollars, the entire system would collapse. It would be unsustainable. That is exactly, though, how our child care system is organized, and it's why it's unsustainable and the system is collapsing. Again, we had a crisis coming into the pandemic. Today, we have a system where, uh, you know, our workforce in child care is 80% of what it was in March of 2020. Um, so we, we didn't have enough before. We don't have enough now, and there's, there's just not enough incentive um, for people to stay doing this work um, and to, to support a robust system that we need. We're talking about California's broken childcare system and what's being done to improve it with Leah Austin, who's the executive director for the Center for the Study of Childcare Employment at UC Berkeley. I want to add Eileen Boris to the conversation. She's the whole professor and distinguished professor of feminist studies at UC Santa Barbara and author of Making the Woman Worker, Precarious Labor and the Fight for Global Standards, 1919 to 2019. Welcome to the show, Dr. Boris. 
Hello. Hello, everyone. I hope you can hear me. We can hear you loud and clear. Um, California. <laughs> so I, I think the question, Professor Boris, is have we ever done childcare well in the United States? World War Two, like so many other aspects of American society, war has a way of people focusing on what the government can do. And it was during World War II uh, in 1943 that something called the Latham Act, uh, which allowed federal monies for public facilities, was uh, used for childcare. And California was the leader, actually. By May of 1945, uh, there were over 25,000 children in uh, these publicly funded wartime child care centers. And so this was a really a high point in uh, the U.S. government funding uh, child care. But the story continues in California because after the war, these funds dissipate from the federal government. But California parents and teachers and uh, public organizations running the gamut uh, from the Communist Party to the League of Women Voters, uh, state legislators who were like Republicans like John uh, Teeny, but also uh, civil rights uh, Democrats like Augustus Hawkins, all came together to continue these child care centers in California. Year by year, they were temporarily funded. But in 1957, they actually became uh, part of the Department of Education. But there was a hitch. While they were universal, everyone who was a war worker could use them during World War II. They became, by 1957, means-tested. That is, you had to be poor or relatively poor. And from uh, two-parent families, essential worker families being targeted, the childcare centers increasingly became connected with poor single mothers. And how did that change the politics around support for childcare? Well, once you move from a program which could benefit us all to a program that is targeted for the, those of us with the least resources, then the program becomes stigmatized and it becomes associated not with uh, education, but with uplift of the poor. But of course, there's more to this story because we could have had a more universal childcare uh, system, but Richard Nixon vetoed in 1971 a bill that would have done that. So in 1971, what, what what was in that bill? I mean, I think uh, Mondale was behind it, I think, right? Right, right. And that was the Comprehensive uh, Child Development Act. And it would have provided money for building centers, but also for improving uh, the salary of teachers. And the centers would not have been limited to poor single women on aid to dependent children or welfare, as it was called. So... Uh, they it would have really come at a moment when the labor force participation of married women with children, particularly white women and middle class women, 
as long uh, as well as women's liberation, in which more and more women wanted to have uh, professional work and continue to work uh, their whole lives, uh, was hitting. And so instead of having this public, universally uh, assessed uh, system, what we get is the kind of fragmentized system that we have today, and that the only publicly funded childcare is means tested. Leah Austin, um, we do have a model for high quality federal child care in the military, though, right? The military offers, I think, a a good example. Um, I would say it's not a perfect system, but I think what's key about our military child care system is, yes, it's it's publicly funded. Um, It has, you know, standards built in. They have made improvements in wages and benefits for the workforce. They make it accessible for people working in the military. And I think part of what's really important about that model is they understand why it's so important from multiple perspectives. They understand that if they're going to have a workforce now who can work, they need good childcare and early learning for their children to participate in. They understand that those children are basically their future workforce. And so they understand the importance of uh, providing good quality childcare and early learning programs to them. And they understand that the workforce um, providing services is the key to making all of that work. Um, And so they have made great improvements over the last several decades since the Military Child Care Act in 1989 um, to to do that, um, to, again, have wage standards. Um, There's still, again, room for improvement there, but they have really made a lot of uh, progress and understand it from each part of the system, which is really we're talking about California's broken early childcare system and what's being done to improve it with Leah Austin, Executive Director for the Center for the Study of Child Care Employment at UC Berkeley, and Eileen Boris, Professor of Feminist Studies at UC Santa Barbara. Have you struggled to find subsidized child care? Have you had to leave a job because you lack child care? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll be back with more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about California's broken early child care system and what's being done to improve it with Leah Austin, the executive director for the Center for the Study of Child Care Employment at UC Berkeley, and Eileen Boris, professor of feminist studies at UC Santa Barbara. And we want to get uh, the parental perspective here, and we'd like to add Michaela Moto, a Richmond mother and a parent leader with Parent Voices California to the conversation. Welcome, Michaela. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for um, inviting me. Yeah. As Professor uh, Boris was talking about California's forays into uh, child care, federally funded child care, couldn't help but think of Kaiser, which used to have a, a great child care program during the war uh, there in Richmond. But what's it like now? How, how does child care work for you, Michaela? 
Well, actually, um, I'm glad that you asked. Uh, the thing is, is that fortunately, I know how to navigate the system of childcare. So when my son, who's now two, was born, I knew that the very next day I needed to get him on the subsidized childcare list, mm -hmm. just because I know that the the list would have been long. Um, I a year after that, um, I learned that he was actually over a thousand on the wait list. So there were more than a thousand children on the wait list for subsidized childcare with um, Coco Kids, which is um, the organization out here that helps out with subsidized childcare. And um, yeah, he was over, he was, there were one th more than 1,000 yeah. children ahead of him. So what does that mean for you? That mean that you just have to pay more out of pocket? Absolutely. So up until then, um, before I ended up receiving subsidized childcare, I did have to pay out of pocket. Luckily, I was able to find childcare here in Richmond with a family uh, childcare that I actually knew before my son was born. Mm -hmm. So they helped me out a little bit. Otherwise, I would have had to pay 1,500, 1,600 for childcare. Wow. And what yeah. would that mean for your sort of finances now? Um, the thing is, is that I ended up having to work a second job. I was a mental health provider here in Richmond, providing mental health services for severe mentally ill adults. Um, but not only that, I had to work Fridays and Saturdays as an Uber Eats driver just to pay for my childcare. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which meant time away from my baby. Yeah, and right. You get home from work and want to see your kids and then have to head back out on the road. Absolutely. Oh, man. Absolutely. So what would you, from your perspective, what would you like to see done? Well, definitely what I would like to see done is that that our our country is able to see the importance of what childcare means um, for our nation. I think that a childcare, I, I am a, now a school psychologist and continue to be a mental health provider. And childcare actually provides the foundation for all of the necessary skills that our children need once they enter school. So I want for us to all know the importance of childcare. I want us to all be able to afford childcare and see that it's a necessity, it's essential, um, and, and that it's affordable and that there's childcare slots open for our kids, especially in our urban communities, our lower income communities. It's, it's just very vital. Um, I want to add Deborah Stipek, a professor at the Stanford University Graduate School of Education, to the conversation. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Glad to be here. Oh, thank you. Um, I want you to talk briefly about what California is trying to do at this moment in time. Well, this is really a wonderful time in California because we have a legislature and a governor who I think really appreciates the importance of those early years and the value in investing in high quality experiences for children in those early years. So the current budget has a number of funding that points to addressing some of the access problems that we've been talking about and also some strategies for increasing quality. And I, I really wanna emphasize quality as an issue because uh, as, Michaela pointed out, 
these early years in children's development are, is laying the foundation for their future social and academic and emotional development. Uh, we know now with the research on brain development that uh, an enormous amount of brain development occurs in those first five years and experience counts a lot. The other thing that points to the importance of quality is that if you look at all of the evidence <clears throat> on the long-term benefits of preschool, it comes from very high quality preschool uh, programs. Mm -hmm. So we can't assume that just increasing preschool or increasing childcare is necessarily going to promote um, better experiences or uh, long-term benefits for children. We really need to invest also in the quality of that care and those educational programs. Uh, Professor Steinbeck, I mean, in this case, what does quality mean? Like, what are the components of quality early child care? We have one main lever for quality, and that is, are the licensing standards. And I, I can say, although the current legislator is trying to um, streamline and improve the system, we have kind of a mess in California. It's complicated, it's uneven. Keep in mind that when we talk about a system of childcare, we're talking about family and friend, uh, neighborhood care, family child care, homes, community-based child care, preschool settings, transitional kindergarten. It's a whole panoply of different kinds of programs with different funding sources and so on. So from a parent's perspective, it's a very complicated uh, bureaucracy uh, to try to navigate and figure out where is the right place for your child, even if you can find a place. So one of the things that's being done is to try to um, streamline that, uh, that system a little bit. The major lever for quality is the teacher. It's the caregiver. Mm -hmm. It's the person who is interacting with children hour after hour, day after day. Um, and I am sorry to say that California is way behind other states in its investment in preparation and support for people who are in those positions, particularly preschool teachers. Yeah. You know, um, I heard you uh, on a podcast with some of your colleagues from the School of Education, and there was this incredible statistic that they dropped, which was that in the U.S., three-year-olds in preschool, only 40% of U.S. three-year-olds are in preschool versus 70% for a basket of 35 similar countries. And that for four-year-olds in the U.S., it's 70% uh, are in preschool versus other schools, uh, other uh, countries, it's virtually 100%. And on top of that, you made the point that the educational levels required in other countries to teach preschool um, are also much higher as well. Most countries require anywhere from three to five years of preparation for a preschool teacher. And it's preparation that is really focused on teaching. It isn't just a, a general education with a few courses in child development. In California, to be a preschool teacher, you, you, you have to have 24 units. Those 24 units can be taken in either a community college or a four-year college. They tend to focus a bit more on foundational knowledge about children, about child development. There's no practice teaching that is uh, required to get a permit to be a lead teacher in a, in a preschool in California. Not only are we way behind Europe, but we're way behind most other states. Most other states require a basically a teaching credential 
that is focused on young children. Yeah. Uh, Michaela, before we uh, let you go back to your busy day, um, I wanted to ask you how you feel about California's current plan and whether you worry about, you know, the quality of the care that your child's getting. I don't worry per se the quality of care um, that he's getting from his childcare site. I do though um, have a concern of the other sites that they are not obtaining the resources that they should be getting, Mm -hmm. that many are leaving the field to then maybe work someplace else. And um, I definitely feel as though that our, our, our children are not going to be prepared and very much so in the academic functioning, in the social emotional functioning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a very scary thing. And then that ends up leading to, of course, more referrals for SPED and the, uh, the school to prison pipeline. It's, it's just a it's, a it's a huge concern for me. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michaela, for sharing your perspective. Um, Absolutely. Really Thank it. you Thank for you. having me. Uh, one of uh, listener Maria writes, um, it seems to me that as long as child care, as well as seeking out child care, is seen as the responsibility of women, we aren't going to make progress in our patriarchal society. How do we shift the perception of this being women's work and uh, women's issue? And honestly, as a as dad, I couldn't agree more with this question and, and would love to hear your answer, Professor Boris. Right. Well, I think the focus on uh, education, of course, is very important. But who cares is a question that goes beyond gender. And we have to remember, and if the pandemic has taught us anything, that uh, we're all in this together. And to the extent that we can stress interdependency is really crucial. This two things that we need to to do. The first is, of course, everyone should take women and gender studies courses (laughs) throughout the curriculum. So we really understand uh, the fungibility and the flexibility of who does what in the world of work and the world of uh, not work. But the other is we need to connect better the real needs of people to the organization of our employment. And right now, for so long, we have tried to fit people into the pegs of how we organize work. And if we can reorganize work to meet the needs of uh, families and individuals, of men as well as women, of us all, and not just the binary, then we'll be better off. We're talking about California's broken early child care system and what's being done to improve it with Eileen Boris, professor of feminist studies at UC Santa Barbara, Leah Austin, the executive director of the Center for the Study of Child Care Employment at UC Berkeley, and Deborah Steibeck, a professor at Stanford University Graduate School of Education and the former dean. Uh, have you struggled to find subsidized child care? Have you had to leave a job because you lacked child care? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Um, we'd like to bring in Julia from Albany, who works on a uh, with a nonprofit uh, working with folks with barriers to employment. Welcome to the show, Julia. 
Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, hey. Um, so, yes, we can hear you. Great. Go go ahead, Julia. Well, did you have a comment? Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I work for a nonprofit, Rising Sun Center for Opportunity, that, um, that does workforce development, helps people uh, with low incomes and and things in their lives that make it difficult to get a job and keep a job, helps them get into uh, construction careers and the building trades. And I would say that childcare is probably one of the number one barriers to employment um, that the people in our programs are facing. And that's, that's along with other things such as, you know, housing insecurity and, and all, all number of other things, but childcare is just really challenging. And I think it, um, it's, it, it, it keeps people from being able to participate in the training program. It keeps folks from being able to get and keep a job once they've completed training. And it's just really difficult to connect people with affordable, quality uh, child care options and resources. Um, and I think that um, on the other side of it, too, we talk a lot in workforce development about job quality. And so on the other side of it, you know, these these uh, jobs for providing um, child care, that's, that's difficult work. It's work that takes a lot of skill and it needs to be paid. Uh, it needs to be paid well. Um, it needs to offer people a chance, an opportunity to live on. So yeah. um, I think it, it works on both sides. Thank you for that, Julia. You know, uh, Professor Stipek, I think one thing we haven't touched on is sort of the uh, the the importance of this kind of early child uh, childhood education for sort of educational and life outcomes for kids. Like, how 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 big of a lever is this? It's a pretty big lever, or it can be a pretty big lever. One thing I I wanted to mention that I don't think m- many people know is that um, the achievement gap that we worry about for children in K twelve actually exists before they enter kindergarten. California has a larger achievement gap than most other states in K-12. But the reason it is larger than most other states is that it has a unusually large gap between lower income children and middle and upper income children when they enter kindergarten. So we have children from low income families on average, entering kindergarten already at a huge disadvantage. So it puts a lot of, uh, I think, focus on meeting their needs and making sure they have all of the advantages and benefits of uh, educational experiences that middle and income and upper income families have. So it's a really important issue and all of the research that shows long-term effects, shows it in terms of achievement in school, in uh, lifetime earnings, even in the likelihood of ending up in the justice system in jail. Um, All of these cost us a lot, but by providing high quality early childhood educational opportunities, we can actually reduce those costs. So not only is the individual benefiting, but society is benefiting. Every dollar we invest in those first five years comes back to us multiple times. It's just hard to make an argument, I think, for people, for legislators who tend to think uh, short term uh, uh, to get them focused on long term investment. The outcome 16 years from now. Yeah, right. exactly. Um, 
You know, we have a few different people uh, commenting something along the lines of this. Peter asks, what does the data say? Would families have more children if the state and federal governments fully funded child care and pre-K schooling? Um, Professor Boris, do you want to talk about that? I think the larger question there is sort of, you know, should the government be subsidizing child care in, in general? There's a certain... Right. Well, back in uh, 1971, when Nixon vetoed the Child Development Act, the argument was, we don't want to sobertize the family. And there we had both traditional gender ideology and this notion that somehow the government should not uh, intervene in what is considered intimate or private life. But we see what the consequences are of both ideologies, of one notion, the idea only women can do it. Well, that's not a good role model for little boys as well as little girls, but it also drags on uh, the ability for real social equality, as well as economic uh, independence for many households, which are female-led, uh, but also in, uh, for households of two uh, adults that need the income or women's careers. But also this notion about the government. Well, when the, who has the funding? Uh, individual households don't. And how are we going to have a truly democratic society unless all children, as Deborah was talking about, can have the same high quality education? We're talking about the crisis in the state's early child care system and what's being done to improve it with Eileen Boris, Deborah Stipek and Leah Austin. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the Internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the crisis in the state's early child care system and what's being done to improve it with Eileen Boris, a professor of feminist studies at UC Santa Barbara, Deborah Stipek, a professor at Stanford University Graduate School of Education, and Leah Austin, the executive director of the Center for the Study of Child Care Employment at UC Berkeley. One sort of long-time um, tension in the child care world has been that, you know, do you, do you give – families money so one parent can stay at home or do you provide you know child care should the state provide uh, child care uh, professor Borsick, how has this kind of played out through history in the US yeah well one re- way it's played out is that child care got a bad name because it was associated with charity that when we had publicly financed child care It was often, as I said, means tested that only poor people could get it. If you earn too much, you couldn't. And that meant we had a whole for-profit industry develop. And somehow you think if you pay for it yourself and you pay more, you're going to get a better quality. So 
the way in which we have financed childcare in the past has either been through uh, tax rebates. So if you don't pay enough in taxes, you can't take advantage of that or subsidies to through uh, welfare programs. And so this has been this has been a problem and has created a very fragmented uh, labor market. You know, it, there's also the, at least there has been, you know, there was a move for sort of the mother's pension, right, where it was essentially sort of a, a basic income for, right. for mothers to live on in the sort of pre-welfare days. That was seen as quite a, a my perception among historians is that's now seen as sort of like a very conservative idea. <laughs> is that is that right? Well, it's a debate. It's a historian's debate on uh, what is called maternalism. Is this maternalistic uh but when you look at the reality of working class women's lives, of immigrant working women uh, in places like Chicago and Illinois was one of the first place with mother's pensions, that being able to have uh, the small subsidy really made a difference because there wasn't uh, either work that paid enough or uh, available childcare or the family ne- networks that could take children in. Actually, mothers' pensions became aid to, to dependent children in the 1935 Social Security Act. So, and but today it's been reinterpreted as parental leave. And California does have some paid parental leave, but we really again need to move towards universal programs rather than uh, ones that are means tested. And we also have to realize that. Uh, Basing things on basing our programs through tax rebates uh, after you pay taxes is discriminatory. And that's why the current uh, Biden program is such a uh, welcome departure, because people are actually getting their checks in the mail. Yeah, right. <laughs> Um, uh, Professor Stipek, you there there is going to be a universal transitional program here in California. Can you tell us a little more about it and and whether you think it's really going to to make a big impact? I think it will have an effect, uh, uh, it, and I actually am very much for it. One, it is available to all children. One of the things that we have now with the um, providing uh, care only to people who are eligible because of their very low income, such as in Head Start or in state pre-K, is we're actually segregating low-income children. So there may be segregation through neighborhoods and that sort of thing, but this is officially sanctioned, required segregation of low-income children, which the research suggests is not a good idea. So by providing it to all children, we get past that segregation strategy. The other thing is the research has shown that uh, transitional kindergarten actually has many benefits for children. And when the studies have compared children who are in transitional kindergarten to same age children who are in a preschool setting, the transitional kindergarten children actually are better prepared academically, and they're no different socially and emotionally. So there were no uh, negative effects of being in a, a slightly more academic environment. I think the real issue is uh, that, again, I go back to the training and support of the teachers. Right now, the people who will be teaching transitional kindergarten 
are credentialed teachers with what's called the multiple credential. It prepares them to teach kindergarten through eighth grade, now TK through eighth grade. And you can imagine in a one-year program that not a whole lot of time is spent focused on very young children. As you all know, four-year-olds are very different from 11-year-olds. Uh, and uh, people need to be well prepared to meet their developmental needs and to uh, provide an appropriate and developmentally appropriate program for them. So again, it's why I would prefer having a, what most states have, which is a early childhood teacher credential that really prepares people to focus on young children. Yeah. We have uh, several comments about teaching um, early childhood education. Judith writes, I'm a furloughed substitute teacher at UC Berkeley's early child care program. From what I hear on the radio, parents want quality child care at a low cost. This leaves the child care teacher caught in the middle trying to make a living, generally receiving substandard pay. We're not considered professionals, but we are responsible for the foundation of our children's future. My concern is that this will be resolved on the backs of teachers and teacher aides. Kate writes, I was employed as a preschool teacher before the pandemic. I am not able to return to the classroom where I make $18 an hour when I have to pay for two children to attend camp over the summer. The math doesn't make sense. Also, from a financial standpoint, it makes much more sense for me to find a corporate job when my children go back to school rather than return to the classroom. And finally, Anamesh writes... Looks like it comes down to math. If each educator can care for at most four children and the educator should be trained for three to four years, you need to be paid 80 to 100K plus the cost of infrastructure like buildings and toys. It sounds like child care can't cost less than 20000 or so per year per child. What's the way out of this log jam? Uh, log jam. Leah Austin, Executive Director, Center for the Study of Child Care Employment at UC Berkeley. Uh, I'm just going to dump these three comments on you, um, which I think has sort of been our, our theme for the day, which is this is a very hard problem to solve. Well, it's not that hard. The problem is a, a commitment and a, a value of, or valuing of early care and education in California and in this country. We know how technically to solve the problem. We can look at how other countries have handled this. We can look at, um, you know, pilot programs that um, have existed across this country for examples of how this works um, and what can be done. So it's a matter of, of changing uh, how we value early care and education and saying this is a critical part of our infrastructure. It's necessary to support families, it's necessary to, to support our economy, and it's necessary to make sure the people doing this work are not worried about feeding their own families. So um, the, the problem is uh, getting the, the getting movement on that, getting the general public, getting our, our legislature to, to support that in full. Um, some of my colleagues at the Economic Policy Institute have done some estimates to help us understand uh, what, what the harm is and what the loss is for for not doing this. So, you know, they've estimated that parents are foregoing, and we, again, as you said at the, the top of the hour, mostly mothers are impacted by this, um, but they're foregoing 30 to $35 billion in um, income and in, uh, lost household income because they either have to leave the labor force or reduce their hours. Um, if we were paying early educators um, good wages and paying them like their elementary school peers, um, you know, their wages would go up. Um, we would see that corresponding to tax revenue increases of about $43 billion a year. So there's a lot that we're losing now. There's ways in which people are harmed and there's a lot we can be doing to 
um, to make change and improve the system. And when we look at the transitional kindergarten program um, that you mentioned, um, and, and you know, Deborah talked about the ways in which our uh, childcare access right now is segregated. I think we also have to pay attention to, way, to the ways in which our early childhood workforce is segregated. And you know, transitional kindergarten as a concept um, holds a lot of promise, right? It's a public program. Parents need that financial relief. It's good for children to have access. But we know that those credentialed teachers that Deborah mentioned in the K-12 space, you know, um, are primarily white and they're, they don't reflect the racial and ethnic background of the children and communities they serve. Whereas our early childhood workforce is much more reflective of students um, and, and their families and communities. You know, the majority of that workforce are women of color, but the way our transitional kindergarten system is now being designed or proposed for expansion is essentially cutting those women out of the system. Um, and these are women who, we have some preliminary data coming out um, towards the end of this month that shows they are prepared. Um, in, in the ways that we want them to be. You know, over half of them have that early childhood education. They've been doing this work for, for decades and are very experienced. Um, so we have an opportunity to really uplift what we're doing in California, but we have to do it right. And we have to acknowledge and include the women who are already doing this um, yeah. and, and, you know, make it work for, for them and the children in communities that they're serving already. All right. I know you need to head out. So thank you so much for your perspective. Leah Austin, Executive Director, the Center for the Study of Child Care Employment at UC Berkeley. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. We're talking about the crisis in the state's early child care system and what's being done to improve it with Leah Austin, who you just heard. Eileen Boris, Professor of Feminist Studies at UC Santa Barbara, and Deborah Stipak, a professor at Stanford University Graduate School of Education. couple of comments here. Listener writes, uh, early child care for our family included my parents helping us out by watching the kids two days a week while my partner and I worked. They say it takes a village, but sometimes, if you're lucky, it can be your family. This was our normal child care in our community that family helped. What are other models out there that might help improve the scarcity issue? Pam writes, I'm concerned that we're not looking at a big enough picture. Yes, the child care market is broken, but in some ways, so is the general labor market. What most parents want is to be able to afford at least some child care, but they also want to be able to afford to work less, both financially and without being penalized for not working horrendously long hours. Shouldn't we be taking this opportunity to remedy this bigger problem? And how would we do it? We'll be talking more about that. But this is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. So, Professor Boris, I'd, I'd like you to address maybe this, since you're a, a labor historian, I'd like you to address this sort of this broader picture that Pam wanted us to address, which is that parents, you know, some people might want to work less also in addition to having childcare. Right. Well, as uh, Sarah Jaffe of uh, the journalist says, love, work won't love you back. But And this goes to the point of, of do how do we solve this uh, disconnect between the organization of work and the organization of families, but also uh, perhaps we need a basic income. <laughs> there was the Stockton experiment. There was you know, and Andrew uh, Yang uh, during the campaign. But 
is there a uh, way we can organize social life so that we can both have uh, you know, eight hours for work, maybe not eight hours for work, but we do have those eight hours for what we will. Right. Uh, uh, the old labor was eight hours work, eight hours uh, for rest, eight hours for what we will. And so we have to think about uh, reorganizing work. And this is one of the issues of the pandemic, obviously, uh, amplified uh, because more and more people were working uh, from home or able to have their jobs at home. That created the problem that you can't watch children and uh, do your job very well. But it also reminded us of the ecological and the social costs of commuting to work. Mm -hmm. So there, on one hand, we have the gig economy, which is turning out to be quite exploitative. Uh, and uh, mechanical Turks and all of that. But on the other hand, we have these new visions of, uh, yes, working less for more. Yeah. Um, let's bring in Melissa from Oakland. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Go ahead. So what's your uh, story with childcare? Yeah, I have been listening to the comments about how childcare providers are often um, underpaid. And it, I wanted to share a little bit of good news with listeners. Oh, that's nice. Um, All right. Childcare, yeah. <laughs> so Nourish California, the organization I work with, is an organization that works on increasing access to food for low-income Californians. And for the last 10 years, um, we have been fighting alongside our childcare providers to support additional funding for childcare meals. Childcare meals are a really important but often unrecognized part of childcare. A lot of us are familiar with school meals, but we have similar federally funded programs to support access to food for our youngest learners. And back in 2012, um, funding at the state level for childcare meals was cut. And throughout the pandemic, we saw the detrimental impacts of cutting that funding. Um, without adequate funding for food, childcare providers often had to cut from their own limited resources to pay for the food for the kids in their care. Um, we know that one in four childcare workers have to actually turn to CalFresh, our state's food stamp program, in order to try to make ends meet. Um, and actually, three in four childcare providers worried about running out of food this last year. Fifty percent actually did. Um, so we have childcare providers who are running out of food and they had limited resources to pay for funding. And this was um, this year, the state actually set aside $15 million to support childcare providers in putting food on the table for low income kids. And that's, um, it's one small step in a larger mo movement that we need to better support our childcare providers. But it's good news that the state is finally investing some of our resources to support both food for kids, but also um, to make sure that child care providers don't have to cut into their already limited budgets to, oh. to put food on the table. So some great news for yeah. this year. Thank you for that, Melissa. Um, Deborah Stipek, um, I want to ask you about the federal level. Um, which is, you know, we're seeing these this movement here in California to provide more funding for a variety of these sort of the, the infrastructure around care. Do you think the same thing's going to happen at the national level? 
Oh, I wish I had a crystal ball and could uh, could could give you an a definitive answer to that. Uh, I hope so because I think the Biden administration is absolutely right to think of childcare and support for young children as uh, as a as a major infrastructure need. Uh, we need, as everything that's been said over the last hour, childcare support for families as much as we need bridges to be able to get people to work. And I, I am, I applaud the effort to try to put a, put a, a spotlight on the need for childcare, the demand for childcare, the necessity of childcare, the economic value of childcare. Uh, and so I'm, I'm quite enthusiastic and I hope it will go through as we all know, there uh, are messy politics going on and so whether it will or not, I don't, I don't know. I, the, the one thing that I do hope is that the focus on access um, is also complemented with an equivalent attention to quality, um, especially of the caregivers and pay. I mean, we, whether it's at the national level or at the state level, you can't do one thing without the other. So if you increase demands and requirements, then you got to pay. pay. <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. also going to have to increase pay. So we all have right. to do it all. Thank so you, Deborah Stipek, professor at Stanford University. Eileen Boris, professor of feminist studies at UC Santa Barbara. And we spoke earlier with Michaela Mota, Richmond mother, and Leah Austin, executive director with UC Berkeley. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.